We are seeing a, a large influx um, of expats moving to the kingdom. I think in the last 12 months, the government recently reported that there was a six-fold increase in the number of professional expats living in the country, and that's grown to 1.2 million. Saudi Arabia's population, of course, sits at around 35 uh, million today. I mean, look, we, Saudi Arabia has been the fastest growing economy amongst the G20 uh, last year, with economic growth coming in in the high eights or low nines percent, depending on the source you look at. Um, and that uh, is a result of the National Transformation Plan that is touching every aspect of Saudi's economy. I mean, all we need to do is look at the PMI indicators for Saudi, which are the purchasing manager indices, which give us a reading of how businesses feel about life. And for the last three years or so, they've been in expansionary territory, which means businesses are growing, they're recruiting, their order books are full. Um, and that is quite a stark contrast to the narrative we hear from elsewhere in the world, where there's continuing talk about a, a soft landing or potentially a global recession. But within Saudi itself, there is so much economic activity linked to Vision 2030 and such a large, dynamic, young population that is sustaining that domestic economic growth that is creating all of these jobs, which are centered in Riyadh, which is where the population is growing the fastest. And indeed, that's where the population is expected to go from seven and a half million today to about 18 million by the end of the decade. This is the 966. This is the 966 episode 84. Mr. Richard Wilson, hello. How are you? Hey, how you doing? Always good to always good to catch up. You know, we were just gabbing about lawn care. Yep, just gabbing, gabbing about lawn care and then we just hit the recording button and just start talking and that's the <laughs> podcast. Um, yep, April 25th, peak spring lawn care season and allergy season. So we apologize to our listeners and viewers for our voices, which we noted sound yeah, exactly. kind of rough today. Um, but Richard, we've got an amazing episode this week. As we teased last week, we have Mr. Faisal Durrani coming on to discuss commercial and residential real estate in Saudi Arabia. And then a lot more than that, mega projects, um, urban development, smart cities. Every, I mean, it's an amazing conversation. Uh, he is brilliant and the report he discusses is brilliant as well. <laughs> you said it all. You said it earlier about our other segments. You said, what did you say? You said, oh, it doesn't matter how good we are this week because Faisal's awesome. We're mailing it in on the other <laughs> segments. You might want to just go to the timestamp where wherever you're listening to this podcast, there's a timestamp. If you click on that, it's hyperlinked. It will take you immediately <laughs> past these upcoming segments right to Faisal because he's amazing. But um, <laughs> he's really yeah, it's true. <laughs> um, yeah, Richard, we've got that coming up, we're going to talk a little bit about Saudi Arabia's role in the international crisis in Sudan. We're going to talk a little bit about the water, hilarious water issue uh, with a Saudi farming company in Arizona. It's something we talked about in episode 70, Richard, actually, so not wow. too long ago. But um, just an update on that situation. There's been some news on that front, and then we'll get to Yella as well. And again, um, we apologize, but we are counting on Faisal's segment to carry the day today because it's just so <laughs> exactly. spectacular. So. <laughs> But we will have a full episode this week and as well as next week and going forward, a really amazing slate of guests coming up. Great stuff. Good stuff in the past. Good stuff coming up. And boy, good stuff this week. Faisal is awesome. What's your one big thing this week, Richard? Um, you, you, uh, you know, you actually, you do have a good knack of, you know, teasing. I like that term, teasing. Um, 
So as we know from the news, Sudan has fallen into a, a civil war, um, essentially pitting the, the commander of the Sudanese military, uh, Lieutenant General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, against the leader of the Rapid Support Services, uh, a Lieutenant General Mohamed Dagalo, better known as Hemdeti, Hemeti, sorry. Um, these two had joined forces in 2019 to oust Sudan's longtime dictator, Omar, Omar al-Bashir, Bashir. Um, and they had planned to, uh, you know, put in place a civilian transitional government that was to take control uh, fairly soon. Uh, unfortunately, they had a disagreement about who was to do what, who was to, you know, relent and, and give up arms and this sort of thing. And uh, it erupted into warfare on April 15th. So this key East African country is in the middle of a, of, of a civil war significant you know, bombing of, of civilian and urban areas, street battles, uh, artillery fire, tens of thousands of Sudanese flee, fleeing their homes, millions trapped in Khartoum, you know, diminishing supply, all, all, the, all the bad things that come with this sort of event. Um, and Sudan, of course, is in uh, East Africa and has, has significant uh, frontage on the Red Sea. So it's, a, it's an important country to all its regional neighbors, in particular Saudi Arabia, you know, as well as others. And the point of this one big thing is really just to talk about Saudi Arabia as a regional actor, responsible regional actor, and soft power, really. Um, it's no deeper than that. But, uh, you know, one of the, so, so we have Sudan falling in disarray, significant foreign populations stranded in essence, um, I think there's some 16,000 American citizens, dual nationalities. Um, but, you know, all the embassy staff in, in countries from all over the world are in peril and, and they have to get out. And, uh, you know, we've seen early reports. This this happened over the weekend. Well, as I said, on the 15th. So it's, it's, it's you know, just over a week uh, into it. And... Um, We've seen the reports and all the early reports, all the, a lot of the early reports, and I'll read some of the headlines. One of the first ones we saw about that there were evacuations of personnel going on was, you know, headlines that say first evacuations of foreign nationals stuck in Sudan announced by Saudi Arabia. Um, another one, Saudi Arabia has evacuated more than 350 people from Sudan, including its own nationals and nationals from 26 countries. And I want, I want to get to that. Um, uh, so, Essentially, we're getting reports now um, of countries, all, you know, as Britain, France, Germany, Italy, Egypt, Russia, Sweden, India, any number of, of countries that have uh, sent naval forces, special forces, uh, you know, military personnel to get their people out. Uh, and it's been kind of a dangerous exercise um, because the first truce didn't really hold. We're now in a 72-hour truce. Um, or the, the now a seventy a seventy two hour truce was put in place. Hopefully that will hold, and more people can get out either by air or by foot or by sea. Um, the point of this is is uh, Saudi Arabia, as when it brokered uh, a, a a trade between Russia and the U.S. in terms of of hostages and and people who've been detained in each country. Uh, has to relish this sort of good news of being a responsible neighbor. Um, so, for example, when it when it talks about 
uh, some of the reporting that it got 350 people out. Uh, 101 of those were Saudis. The rest were citizens from other countries, um, a whole array of other countries, Pakistan, India, Bulgaria, Canada, um, Kuwait, Qatar. Uh, and, and so it was a goodwill gesture and, you know, got a lot of, of, of nice responses from, from leaders all over the country saying thanks. Um, so anyway, this is, this was an opportune, uh, political relations bounce for Saudi Arabia from a very unfortunate circumstance in Sudan, which has, will play it out. But, uh, it, it, you know, it's, it is a nice, it's a nice way for Saudi Arabia to be a responsible player in the region. Yeah, Richard, this is a good one. This is sort of an important topic globally. And because of Saudi Arabia's proximity to Sudan makes it a very important issue for Saudi Arabia. We're going to talk about it in a little bit, but President Biden thanked Saudi Arabia for its role. Um, and I mean, thanked directly in a statement for its role in getting people out. Very interesting. A lot of people are were not, I mean, in general, are not that aware of Sudan. It hasn't been an issue or a, a, there's, it's actually been really re relatively peaceful since 2019 when Bashir was ousted. They sort of were drifting towards democracy. And then just like that, everything sort of went up in flames. And it's right. really sad. Um, What's interesting is Sudan has a 530 mile coastline on the Red Sea and just directly across from that is all Saudi Arabia. So maximum width of that is 190 miles. So Saudi Arabia is by far the best placed neighbor to help evacuate uh, civilians and those not fighting in this conflict out of the country because the airports are shut down and in some cases damaged or even destroyed. So some of the evacuations must take place by sea. So Saudi Arabia is a natural country to help with that. As of Tuesday, Richard, 356 people, I think this is the latest, 356 people, 101 Saudi citizens, as you mentioned, 255 others belong to 26 nationalities. I think that number will go up. A lot of these people are landing in Jeddah, the port city, and then will fly out of Jeddah to their home country. Um, but yeah, this is just a really sad situation. And we are hoping really for two things. One, that neighboring nations, not Saudi Arabia, but neighboring African nations are not drawn into this. They're not drawn into taking a side or supporting one side and making it worse. And the other is that this ceasefire that you mentioned continues and they figure out a way to sort of, I mean, because these are two essentially would-be dictators fighting over control of the nation. Yeah. Um, and so we're hoping for a good outcome to this because and especially Saudi Arabia does not want a very unstable neighbor again next to it. So, yeah. yeah. And that's a good point about proximity, because if you're going to get off the continent, you got to go, you got to go east. And, yeah. you know, across the Red Sea, that's as good as anything. And uh, people are trying to walk out. People are like, you know, you know, a lot of them have gotten out uh, some, some of the U.S. and that sort of thing. They got out by air, U.S. diplomatic personnel and, and you know, EU countries and that sort of thing. But a lot of them, like you say, are coming out by sea. And Saudi Arabia will be, you know, typically houses them, you know, uh, in, in, in good, healthy situations and will move people along and, and they can take as many as they can get. And I, like you say, I agree, they'll probably have, they'll, they'll likely have more. But yeah, you don't want to, I mean, this is one of the, you know, the concerns about Saudi Arabia and the region is failed states all around it. And you don't want another failed state 
or failing state or dysfunctional state right across the Red Sea. Richard, my one big thing this week, a little bit of a lighter story, although somewhat of a serious development, which is the ongoing water situation in Arizona and the American West, which lassos, if you will, Saudi Arabia right <laughs> into the drama. We talked in episode 70, Richard, about recent investments into Saudi Arabia's water sector domestically in the kingdom and, and addressing water security in Saudi Arabia's arid and water stress regions of the kingdom. We also re recently hosted, we should do a little shout out and ask viewers and listeners if they haven't listened to it yet. We hosted Dr. Abdulaziz Alanazi, our old friend who does research on water in Saudi Arabia and recently co-won a prestigious international prize for water research from his time at the University of Cincinnati. Talk with him a little bit about about water and his patents that he's uh, received and some of the work he's done for his research. So we've talked about water a little bit, Richard, in, in Saudi Arabia. It's kind of an important thing because it ties heavily into agriculture and farming and the supply of food for their growing kingdom. So it's, you know, it's sort of a key thing. And obviously what many people know about Saudi Arabia, if they know one thing, is that it's a large desert and it's very dry. There aren't, <laughs> there isn't a lot of rain, there aren't a lot of rivers. So water is very precious there. So Saudi Arabia is sort of going through a water transition where they are, in, you know, pursuing innovations in agriculture, central pivot agriculture. When you fly into Riyadh, Richard, as you recently did a couple of weeks ago, it's, you can't miss it. There's these big green circles that you go in. It's really cool. But mostly what they have been doing is conserving water. And that has led Saudi Arabia to explore farming and agricultural opportunities abroad, both for wheat and uh, and imports of wheat from places like Ukraine and in Africa, and then in other things like alfalfa to feed cows, agricultural enterprises abroad, including the United States. So the largest agricultural company in Saudi Arabia, their version of Monsanto or whatever, the, the, I, I don't even know if it's Monsanto. It, I don't think it's Monsanto anymore, right? It's something no, else. Uh, yeah, bad PR. Um, <laughs> Uh, is a conglomerate called Almirai, which owns a subsidiary called Fondamante. This is we've somebody discussed about, uh, I guess, three or four months ago, Richard. That subsidiary is active in the U.S. state of Arizona and California farming alfalfa. Just found itself once again as a nice big round button in a hot button issue in the American West, which is water. The twin-headed dragon of overuse and irresponsible usage of water over decades of American settlement in the West and climate change have presented local and national politicians with a series of really, truly unpalatable and difficult dis uh, decisions and choices when it comes to water in the American West. In Arizona, you have the Colorado River forming the western boundary of the state and some smaller rivers, and then you have this massive amount well, was massive and dwindling amount now of groundwater underneath the surface. I should add here, making it all worse for everyone, is that in each state, though they share rivers, each has its own water usage rules and laws, with the federal government enforcing the Clean Water Act of 1972. It's just a big, complicated legal mess. And the idea in general at the beginning was come out here and farm, use any water you want because we want to settle this area. So you have this very difficult problem now, which is a dwindling amount of water for people to use. And you have these big agricultural companies in California and Arizona and other Western states using a lot of the water. One thing that is very helpful for politicians facing this issue is a absolutely totally convenient scapegoat. Enter Almirai and Fondamante owned by Saudi Arabia and Arizona's attorney general, Chris Mays. Uh, this modern saga really begins in 2015 
with the Arizona State Land Department, which allowed Fondamonte to lease desert farmland west of Phoenix at one-sixth of its market value and pump groundwater from Phoenix Water Reserves. That was Fondamonte, of course. Fondamonte had permitting applications into the state for drilling two new wells, but those were this week denied ceremoniously by the state's attorney general, Chris Mays, who used the opportunity to make an example of Saudi Arabia's farms in Arizona and the need for water to be used by locals instead of international farming conglomerates. Makes sense. The permits were denied after Hayes raised objections about some of the paperwork, discrepancies about ownership, um, and whether the wells were new or replacements. um, I mean, it's fairly legitimate. You probably have to have that stuff straight when you submit it and you are proposing to pump hundreds of thousands or millions of gallons of uh, groundwater. But she then took the opportunity to make this very political hot button issue and said, quote, it's outrageous and frankly unacceptable that the state would even consider granting new wells to allow the Saudis to pump millions of gallons of water to grow more alfalfa for their cows. She said, noting the vast amount of water that could come from those new wells, quote, In one day, the amount of water pumping out of just one of those wells could serve roughly 30,000 Arizona residents, which is pretty astonishing given that the entire population of La Paz County has just over 16,000 people. (laughs) (laughs) This this is water, she said, that belongs to the people of Arizona. It needs to stay in the ground in La Paz County. So, I I mean, so right now what you have is uh, sort of in the American public and, and especially in the West, you have this idea or concept that there is a dwindling amount of water in the ground and that one of the companies that is taking it is a Saudi company that is using it to farm alfalfa to feed its cows to make milk in Saudi Arabia. So you sort of can see how this is very easy for people to say this is no good. So looking into just a little bit more, Richard, because we have discussed this before, and it's, it's a little bit of the classic issue for Saudi Arabia here where it, you just get caught up in some sort of firestorm. But Almirai, which is valued at $14.3 billion dollars, owns 10,000 acres of farmland in Arizona under the subsidiary Fondamonte. Uh, It is the biggest player in the Middle East dairy supply. It also owns 3,500 acres in Southern California, which also uses the Colorado River that uh, divides the two um, states. So this issue, of course, Richard, as you know, isn't just this one farm or this one company. And there have been reports in CNN and other places about another company from the UAE named Al-Dahra doing the same thing also in Arizona. The issue, of course, is years, decades of lax water usage rights, both at the state and federal level, as America rushed to settle the West. Just to give you one example in Arizona, 80% of the state has no laws overseeing how much water corporate mega farms are using, nor is there any way for the state to track it, which is amazing. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing. And then compounding everything, of course, is climate change, varying weather patterns, providing drier riverbeds and unpredictability when it comes to farming. The Colorado River, of course, does not begin in Arizona. It begins north of Arizona. So another state is also drawing on that supply. So yeah, this, Richard, when we do our daily uh, newsletter, which is just fantastic, you know, you see themes kind of come and go. This one came a few months ago and went and we talked about it on the program and then came up again because this uh, Arizona attorney general was like, well, I'm going to make a big public example about the denial of these permits. And you just can kind of understand how the layperson might say, well, this is, you know, open and shut. The Saudis are in here pumping water, growing alfalfa in the desert and then feeding it to cows in the Middle East. And, you know, what does Arizona have to show for it? Um, So, yeah, this is a this is a. A uh, very interesting story. I'm glad we could uh, 
we could sort of bring it up again. Just wanted to add one more thing here. We included this last time, but Natalie Coach, who is a geographer, did a great interview with hcn.org about why Saudi farmers are pumping Arizona groundwater and sort of gave some context. It was really interesting. And the history there goes way back to the 1940s or 50s on that relationship and and actually the import of camels into Arizona as well from hmm. the Middle East, which is it's a cool interview. I didn't want to, don't want to take too much time on it, but uh, yeah, just worth noting. But yeah, anyway, so uh, Fondamante and Almarai are right in the crosshairs right now of a very tough political conversation in the American West. Yeah, wrong place at the wrong time. That was a good one. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry, I was a little long-winded. No, no, it's, it's, fascinating. It's, it's, it's so much fun to, uh, you know, when you can refer to earlier episodes or segments and stuff. And, and we did that. Interestingly enough, there were a couple of connections between your one big thing and my one big thing. One, food, food security, which is a big issue in Saudi Arabia. Good um, point. They've, they've invested, um, I, I think, in 2019, 2021. They went in with the Emiratis on a $3 billion, essentially, agriculture fund in Sudan you know, to grow and to promote uh, food production, not only for domestic purposes, but also for export. Again, you know, this is a, a policy that Saudi Arabia has, you know, it, it doesn't have a lot of homegrown uh, fertile land, uh, you know, farming abroad and agreements with governments and, and uh, municipalities and states is, you know, been part of their modus operandi for a while. Um, the other way it's connected, it's a PRs, you know, you know, the, the, the unfortunate circumstances Sudan has given Saudi Arabia to have a nice PR balance. They're completely, you know, what's going on in Arizona, as you really well outlined, you know, Saudi Arabia's collateral damage here. Um, the, you know, the water issue, uh, and the problems in Arizona are entirely homegrown. And you mentioned that eighty percent of the eighty percent of the state doesn't have any water law, and the and the and the law of the land in that eighty percent is those with the deepest wells win. So it's you know it's a constant uh, you know ongoing you know contest to, to get the deepest well, dig the deepest well, and this is for the most part historically has been very much supported by farmers. These are this is the wild west, of course, and they tend to skew highly conservative and and you know. Um, personal rights and that sort of thing. And, and they don't want anybody um, constraining, regulating, or interfering at all with their right to do what they want to do. If it means digging a well, not digging a well, they don't want the government involved. And the end result is this, you know, everybody's suffering. And it's, um, it's interesting because I guess in reading this, some of this solution, you know, there's... Um, there are groups now, they're actually counties, constituencies that are coming together, individual farmers and saying, look, we need to set up some sort of management authority because we're just going to get, we're going to get wiped out in this. You know, everyone, everyone, uh, you know, just looking after their own doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously water politics in Arizona are very fraught. Like you say, you know, Saudi Arabia is an easy stocking horse. So so where they fell on a nice PR side on the on the Sudan, they fell on the wrong PR side in Arizona. Yeah, um, yeah, great point. Really great yeah. point on that. And and the Sudan farming thing is is, uh, I mean that's it's, it's we didn't plan that tie in, but that's an amazing no. tie in. <laughs> well, and I mean you, I think you drew this out. I don't think you need any more details from me, but the you know for perspective because you were giving perspective of this i mean it, it, you know it, they're in the they're in the butler the fondamande 3500 acres i guess is in the butler valley which is west of phoenix 
I mean, that 35 acres is 2% of the basin, you know, that valley. Um, and, you know, almost most of, most of Arizona's alfalfa production goes to local dairies. Um, and, you know, in fact, and, and the, 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 the destination that is most exported to in alfalfa is not Saudi Arabia, it's China. Um, so again, like you very well drew out and you grew us a picture, Saudi Arabia is just was in the wrong place at the, the wrong, wrong place, time. At the wrong time. Right. And then <laughs> you kind of get, you get to look at how this is a very like a sausage being made part of American politics where you just see how one politician or an attorney general, somebody just says, Ooh, wow, this is a really easy way to score votes oh, by yeah. creating an enemy, yeah. making it Saudi Arabia and then saying, Hey, they're taking, and it just makes it easy to understand. Richard, this is a perfect case, and we don't need to go too long on this, but um, this is a perfect case for the federal government to come in, wrangle all the states together and say, look, like if you guys aren't all cooperating here, then this all goes away. And the 1972 Clean Water Act sort of does some of that, but I mean, there needs to be more of that. There shouldn't be these states sort of operating on their own. Otherwise, this is never going to work out. But yeah, very complicated issue as well. Yeah, and that's the problem here. You know, large swaths of that area don't want anything to do with the federal government interfering with local or state issues. Yeah. Uh, so if they can't work it out on their own, we'll see what happens. Some dry swimming pools and yeah, uh, and, pe and people going out of business. You know, you know the uh, you know rugged individuality is great, right up to the you know now right up to the point where you go out of business. Right. Um, anyway, right. so that's it. You know. Anyway, that's a that's a particular in the bag of mine. I, you know, I, I, it, hopefully they can get it together and police themselves and find some sort of you know reasonable solution to all this. Yeah, Richard, good one. Excellent. Let's get to our conversation with Faisal Durrani talking about the real estate, commercial and residential real estate markets in Saudi Arabia and Giga projects. Up a whole host of issues from their recent report on the kingdom, which is just awesome. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> this is so good. So again, you may be you may be listening to this right now because you just skipped the previous conversation to get to this. So we're just going to get right to it. Here's our conversation with Faisal. We are pleased to welcome back to the 966, Mr. Faisal Durrani, partner and head of Middle East Research at Knight Frank, the global residential and commercial real estate consultancy with a significant presence in Saudi Arabia with offices in both Jeddah and Riyadh. And Faisal, we are excited to ask you soon about your new offices from Riyadh, which we understand are quite modern and lovely. Knight Frank <laughs> offers a range of services in both consulting and transactional and has seven total offices in the Middle East region, recently released a comprehensive, beautiful 75-page report on the markets. Faisal, welcome back to the 966. Nice to see you again. Thanks, Lucian. Great to be back. And hi, Richard, as well. There's some big picture things that this this um, survey touches on. Can you start with that planned construction is the largest site, the construction site the world has ever known, just to give us a context of the scale of this? Absolutely. Um, so Richard, you're, you're right. I mean, the, uh, the backdrop or the context for our survey is tremendous. Um, we are currently tracking, as you said, over $1.1 trillion worth of real estate and construction projects around the kingdom. And that includes 550,000 plus residential units, more than 6 million square meters of office space, more than 4 million square meters of retail space, 
and actually over 310,000 hotel room keys now. Um, so that's gone up uh, slightly since we last spoke. Um, and that includes uh, about $200 billion worth of infrastructure projects that are going to be needed to support the tremendous real estate development, including $150 billion or so that's being spent on upgrading the main airport in Riyadh, uh, which when fully completed by 2050 will be bigger than Dubai International and London Heathrow combined. Oh, that's amazing. So uh, let's get what appears to me, and I don't want to, I don't want to get too far ahead too fast, but since we talked to you, it seems like this, this breakneck speed of, 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 construction and investment has resulted in a, a, a significantly changed real estate market, residential particularly, and particularly for Riyadh. Can you give us a quick sort of overview of what's happening now in the residential market uh, for, all, all, you know, but Riyadh, because it's such a central focus of, of, the, of 2030, but also Jeddah and Dammam and elsewhere? Sure. Um, so our new report, uh, which we publish annually, which is called the Saudi report, was published three or four weeks ago. Um, and this year, we've actually undertaken three different uh, res- uh, three different consumer surveys um, to gather our data. Uh, the first survey we undertook was of more than a thousand Saudi national households. Um, and the goal here was to try and get a better understanding of the depth of appetite to rent or purchase residential property in the kingdom. Um, One of the first things we wanted to do was sort of get a grasp or a handle on the depth of appetite to buy a home. So when we ran this survey last year, we found that 84% of Saudi households wanted to buy a first or second home during 2022. Now that figure in 2023 has actually slipped to 40%. Uh, So that's quite a significant reduction in that appetite to buy a home. Now, the answer for that reduction isn't as black and white as I would like it to be. There's a number of complex factors that are working together, but chief of those is linked to affordability. Um, One of the things I think we touched upon when I last spoke with you uh, was the growing concern that we had around the rapid rise in residential values. For context, somewhere like Riyadh has seen house prices increase by 26% in the last 12 months. Um, And if we're looking at the market over the last two years, apartment prices in Riyadh have increased by over 50%. Um, And not to be outdone, villas have also seen a 32% increase in values over the last couple of years. Now, clearly, people's incomes haven't risen at that same pace. So what we're finding is that people are being forced into a holding pattern whilst they save bigger deposits so that they can either make that transition from renting to owning or purchase a second home. What's what's driving this demand? What's what's pushing up these the the prices and dampening, you know, buyers' enthusiasm for getting into the market? Well, I mean, look, one of the core pillars of Vision 2030 is providing world-class housing for Saudi nationals. And the government has launched a range of programs such as Wafi or Sukini to try and ease the access to getting on the housing ladder through providing easy access to debt financing, through the provision of homes that are more affordable. And that has excited the population. 
and so have the giga projects so there's a whole group of aspirational buyers in saudi who are trying to get on the housing ladder and the supply doesn't exist yet to cater to that depth of demand but not only that we're also seeing you know cultural shifts in the market that are driving that residential demand we're seeing household sizes for example declining because we've got younger saudis who are moving out of their family homes at a younger age in search of career opportunities elsewhere in the kingdom um it is now more culturally acceptable to live in an apartment rather than a villa it's also more culturally acceptable to raise a family in an apartment rather than a villa um so we're seeing cultural shifts taking place beneath the beneath the data if you like and we have to remember that 56% of saudi's population is below the age of 35 and it is this young group that is creating that additional residential demand that is putting pressure upward pressure on house prices um and I, you know with that rapid rise we've actually seen a 25% decline in the number of homes sold in the kingdom in the last 12 months but if we look at the total value of homes sold in the last 12 months that's only fallen 4% which really highlights that strong increase we've seen in house prices what role and you're talking about uh saudis who are the aspirational aspect of young saudis what role as as our viewers many viewers would know that saudi arabia has instituted uh, a regional hq mandate in essence which uh, takes effect january 2024 which requires anybody who's doing business with the the us i mean the saudi government needs to have a regional headquarters uh and i it used to be riyadh hq but now it's regional so you can actually do it i think in in not only riyadh but also maybe jeddah as well is that correct um our understanding thus far is that those hqs need to be in riyadh uh, uh, so um, and and is that is that uh, another element in this uh, you know tight market and growing increasing prices well as things stand home ownership is restricted to saudi nationals and uh, long term expats in the kingdom um but we are seeing a, a large influx um of expats moving to the kingdom i think in the last 12 months the government recently reported that there was a sixfold increase in the number of professional expats living in the country and that's grown to 1.2 million saudi arabia's population of course sits at around 35 uh, million today i mean look we saudi arabia has been the fastest growing economy amongst the g20 uh, last year with economic growth coming in in the high 8s or low 9% depending on the source you look at um and that uh, is a result of the national transformation plan that is touching every aspect of saudi's economy i mean all we need to do is look at the pmi indicators for saudi which are the purchasing manager indices which give us a reading of how businesses feel about life and for the last 3 years or so they've been in expansionary territory which means businesses are growing they're recruiting their order books are full um and that is quite a stark contrast to the narrative we hear from elsewhere in the world where there's continuing talk about a a soft landing or potentially a global recession but within saudi itself there is so much economic activity linked to vision 2030 and such a large dynamic young population that is sustaining that domestic economic growth that is creating all of these jobs which are centered in riyadh 
which is where the population is growing the fastest. And indeed, that's where the population is expected to go from seven and a half million today to about 18 million by the end of the decade. So, and that's a big number. What is the government? And I say government because one of the leading housing entities is Roshan. Um, what is the government doing to try and get ahead of this? Because uh, clearly there's a huge demand that's required and that's not sufficient at the moment. So look, there's, there's a number of things that are happening. Um, I mean, if we want to create a second global hub city in the Middle East, be it Riyadh or any other city, we have to look more closely at the livability and habitability of Saudi cities. Um, and what we've seen is well-being has actually been placed at the heart of government plans. Uh, for instance, in Riyadh, there's a program called Green Riyadh, where $23 billion is being spent on planting seven and a half million trees and creating hundreds of new parks and public spaces. We've also got something called the Riyadh Sports Boulevard, which is being built at five, a cost of $500 million, which is going to be over 100 kilometers of jogging tracks, cycling tracks, and associated retail, such as cafes and boutique hotels. Um, so there is a much, much greater focus now on improving, as I say, the habitability and livability of Saudi cities. But at the same time, you mentioned Roshan there. Now, that is a, a really good example of a developer that is creating residential communities. Um, as I mentioned a moment ago, you know, a large proportion of the population is young and classed as millennials below the age of 35. And a big group of these young Saudi millennials have been educated overseas, typically in the West. Um, and they're now coming home and they've got very particular expectations and they know exactly what they're looking for, which is why we're seeing a sharp increase in demand for community living. So young Saudis don't necessarily want to spend you know, a long time in traffic commuting to drop their kids off at school or commuting long distances to work or traveling very far to get to a supermarket, a shopping mall, or a mosque. And we now see the demand for having all of these facilities within walking distance in a self-contained community with shared facilities and amenities is rising. And that wasn't necessarily the case in the past. There's so many cultural uh, themes and transitions that are buried in there's nuggets everywhere in this report. One of them was on, on specifically on those uh, community living. You, you found that only young people are are gravitating towards it, but uh, people on the higher end of the wealth spectrum, at the higher level of you know what they're looking at a more expensive pe uh, you know piece of property, are also gravitating. They they are they are partial to that community living, which again seems counter to the traditional way we. We, you know, they have they have gone about organizing their family structures, which is usually three generations in the same place. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, the the impact of domestic migration in Saudi, I think, cannot be understated. You know, our strategic consulting team has done quite a lot of work in this area, trying to quantify the volume of domestic migration taking place. Um, and in our in our study, what we found is sixty eight percent of everybody we spoke to actually classes themselves as being temporarily resident in the city in which they live and work. Um, so that suggests that they've come from another city inside the kingdom. And what's really fascinating is of that group, about 74% are telling us that they would like to live in a smaller home, 
and 62% would rather rent than buy. Um, so these are quite significant changes that are taking place because typically most Saudis want to live in a large villa, three or four bedrooms, uh, that isn't typically in a gated community, but that dynamic is shifting. And when we examine the demand for apartment living between those who are migrants in a city and those who are indigenous to the city in which they live and work, we see that 42% of those who are migrants are partial to an apartment. But if that individual is from that city, that's their hometown, only 15% are interested in buying an apartment. They still want a large three or four bedroom villa. And the issue we've got right now is um, budgets are hovering roughly at about 1.5 million rials. Um, and if you're looking for a high quality three or four bedroom villa in Riyadh or Jeddah, it's gonna cost you anywhere in the region of 2.4, 2.5 million rials up to three, three and a half million rials. So we have a huge discrepancy between aspirations and reality. And we've done a piece of analysis looking at the ratio of household incomes to house prices. Essentially, how many years worth of salary do you need to save to be able to buy a home? So typically around the world, what's considered affordable is about six times your annual income because you will make a deposit of 10 to 20% and then you will secure a mortgage or other financing to make up the rest. Um, so today, if you're looking to buy a villa in Jeddah or Riyadh, it costs anywhere between 13 to 15 times your annual household income. So we've clearly breached what is considered an affordable threshold. So that too is playing a part in driving demand away from villas towards apartments. Yeah, Faisal, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but um, I asked Jerry Inzarello from Daria about this, and I, I sort of said, like, what is the most important thing about what's being developed in Daria? And he said, you know, it's really important that the people that work here get to live here, not just on the development of Daria, but also that are working in Daria get to live there so that they get to enjoy a full life in Daria. And I'm wondering if, I mean, is there a concerted effort to provide affordable housing? I mean, is there like a, how do they bridge that gap that you just talked about? I mean, it is a challenge and it's probably easier said than done. Um, and actually one of the big opportunity areas that we've identified as a result of our survey is in the residential space uh, to deliver homes that are more affordable in inverted commas. Now, over the last couple of years, we've seen land prices soar. We've seen construction material prices rising globally, which makes it quite difficult to actually deliver something that is affordable. However, one of the areas that we feel is still ripe for um, further focus is around townhousing developments. Um, we've got very few examples of those in Saudi, and every time they've been launched, they've been hugely successful. Now, townhouses, by their very nature, are similar to villas. Uh, they offer that privacy and crucially, they come with that outside space. And when provided in a community setting, they do extremely well. So that is one way of bridging that gap. But the second and more interesting way is around something called MMC or Modern Methods of Construction. And that involves things like modular construction, offsite manufacture or 3D printing. Now, except that those aren't necessarily mainstream construction methods anywhere in the world yet, 
But when combined with traditional construction methods, they can certainly help to alleviate some of those cost burdens and some of those time constraints, because we're looking at delivering a huge volume of residential supply in a very short period of time. Um, and through the 2020s, I expect to see a much greater focus on these MMC methods, um, not just in Saudi, but elsewhere in the world. So I think that's how we would go about bridging that gap. And is there a, was, is there a lot of, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Richard, sorry. Go ahead. If you, if well, you, just a quick follow-up. Follow is there, yeah, is there a lot of interest in the investment in, you know, the development? Like, is there a lot of speculation going on, like, um, for investors in this space? At the moment, no, um, because as I said before, home ownership is restricted to Saudi nationals and long-term expats um, rather than international buyers. Uh, but there is discussion that that law might change soon. Um, and I think if we think about things like the Giga projects, um, it is very much our expectation that the bulk of homes delivered there will be priced north of a million dollars uh, or about 3.8, 3.9 million reals. Uh, which is well above the the budget of an average Saudi household. So in order to you know create demand or facilitate demand uh, for those more expensive homes, uh, we are going to have to look at other markets. We Faisal, we we uh, mentioned Roshan, which is a PIF owned PIF public investment uh, fund owned construction company, essentially housing. Uh, and uh, is there a robust private sector? element in this in in this housing market are, are there private companies that are are, are recognizing the, the tremendous need for more stock and are they building there are uh private companies but most of what we see and most of what we're talking about is being delivered by um uh, quasi-government or government related entities at the moment just because of the sheer scale um that's involved um, as well as the fact that, uh, you know, qu quite a few of the domestic developers may not necessarily be accustomed to delivering the volume of stock that is required. It's a challenge. And I know, uh, I know, for example, you know, PAF recently invested in four Saudi construction companies, contracting companies. I don't, I'm, I really don't know a lot of those, maybe other kind of projects. I don't know how much housing they do, but, you know, getting domestic they need that engine to kick in, that part of it to kick in, to really hit, you know, keep up with the, with the pace. Um, and it, so it's, it's a really tricky thing to accomplish while you're pushing so hard and providing, you know, uh, government funded, ha essentially housing. Um, and, I mean, and, there are programs in place at the moment where domestic developers and contractors are being transitioned into being national development champions um, because they have to go through that growth cycle pretty quickly. Um, another sort of area that we feel could be explored a bit further is something called the master developer delivery model. Um, it is where you look at a large scale project that involves thousands of land plots. The developer or control master developer only builds out a few of those plots and the remaining plots are then sold um, or built out by other contractors and developers, but with very specific guidelines in place. Um, we've already seen an example of that in Dubai Marina, uh, which, which is an EMAR master planned community. Uh, they developed a handful of plots and the remaining plots were then sold off to private, uh, private investors and developers. And they were allowed to build 
uh, within certain constraints. Um, and that sort of allowed the developer to sort of rise above the detail of worrying about putting, putting everything together and take more of a strategic view of the development. How does that development fit into my city? What is the infrastructure required to support the growth of my development, for example? Interesting. That is interesting. Um, one of the nuggets, and Micah, this this survey, again, this report is like California in 1849. You go out there and there's nuggets everywhere. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it was interesting. And it speaks to people like Lucian and I who live around the Washington, D.C. area, which is kind of a transient area. And and it, it's not comparable per se, but one of the one of the nuggets that came out of it is in your survey among Riyadh residents, just over half, fifty three percent, were born in the capital, considered it their home. In Dammam, this figure is fifty eight percent, and in Jeddah, it's almost two thirds. You know, it's sixty six percent of respondents were born and raised in the city. So it's interesting how Riyadh is sort of becoming the test case for the new Saudi. Uh, residential consumer. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean that this is this is Riyadh is being positioned as a new commercial nerve center for the kingdom. Um it is at the heart of all the job creation that that we're talking about. This is where businesses are relocating. This is where the infrastructure is going into to facilitate the emergence of a new global hub city. Um, and young Saudis are gravitating towards Riyadh for, for jobs. And that is what is driving some of these shifts in the demand dynamics uh, that we talked about. Uh, like I say, you know, 62% of them would rather rent than own. Um, and to date, that, that market hasn't really uh, been paid too much attention to, um, which is why another area of opportunity we feel that exists around the build to rent space um, because we've got this group of young Saudis looking for short-term-ish accommodation, which they will want to rent rather than buy. Um, and we don't really have vast quantities of studio or one or two-bedroom apartments um, in Riyadh. Um, and on top of that, we don't actually have international BTR or build-to-rent operators uh, present in Riyadh. Uh, that operate elsewhere in the world, that have large portfolios under their belt, that have huge experience in creating successful build-to-rent communities. And they are increasingly conspicuous by their absence, not just in Saudi, but the wider Middle East. Faisal, you mentioned uh, keen interest on a part of, of folks going into the housing market in the Giga projects. Uh, is this across all of them, or can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, now, one of the things we'd, we've done for the second year running is create a little bit of a league table of popularity amongst the Giga projects. And we've, <laughs> so, we, we, let's hope nobody gets relegated. <laughs> well, you say that. Um, I mean, we, we asked a very simple question. You know, which Giga project would you most like to live in? Um, and when we asked this question last year, Neom uh, came out head of the pack. And that was closely followed by the Red Sea project um, on, on the uh, west coast of Saudi, and then uh, Diraya Gate in, in Riyadh. Uh, when we asked the question this year, we've seen a little bit of a shakeup in, in the popularity league table. Um, <laughs> Neom still hanging on to, to first place. But in second place, uh, we now have uh, Jeddah Central, a uh, $20 wow. billion dollar project uh, based on the historic districts, based in the historic part of Jeddah with 17,000 homes. And in third place this time, we have King Salman Park, uh, which is in Riyadh, 
which will be the world's largest urban park and residential community. Um, and we see the Red Sea project and uh, Daraya Gate pushed into fifth and sixth place, respectively. Um, now, why, you ask, uh, have, have those two projects uh, fallen uh, lower down the, the popularity rankings? Um, we actually feel that somewhere like the Red Sea project is an easy one to explain. It is the most advanced in terms of its development. Um, and it is very clear that the focus is on creating a luxury holiday destination with perhaps an emerging luxury second homes market. Um, and given what we said earlier about average budgets being around the 1.5 million real mark, it's quite clear that most average Saudi households are unlikely to be able to afford the residential product that is planned there. So they are turning their attention to projects that they perceive will be more affordable and also those that have perhaps been in the press more recently. That's that no, that's fascinating on the Jeddah Central, and because because uh, not only is Jeddah is is a, a different kind of existence than than uh, Riyadh, but the prices are have not gone up as as steeply. That's interesting, and and you know these are these are like consumers everywhere in the world. You know they weigh all the factors and they they you know make a decision. Prices have not gone up as steeply in, in percentage terms, but when you're looking at villas, for example, they, Jeddah has historically been more expensive than Riyadh to buy a villa because of land constraints. Um, so Jeddah still does remain more expensive to buy a villa than, than Riyadh today. Interesting. Given the youth population, the large youth population that you mentioned, is there a strong interest a stronger interest, maybe it's a way to phrase the question in smart cities and that element of the, these giga projects. Um, good question, Lucian, but I don't have the answer for you. <laughs> <laughs> Report number this three, twenty twenty four. This is a really hard thing to do. We're trying to trying to add, you know stump Faisal. And it's, yeah, well, it's, it's hard to it's do. It's just such a cool, it's such an amazing topic. We've talked about this, Richard, on the show before. Real estate touches everything. So it's so fascinating yeah, to yeah. us and and really to everyone. So and, and I was curious in about in this in this report, because uh, uh Knight Frank has has done the best job, as far as I can tell, of anybody in tracking the Giga projects. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, detailed, you know, where they are, how they where they are in the progress and and you know the scale of of each project. I was, I'm curious about two things. One, what is, what, what qualifies as a giga project? So giga projects typically cost in the billions of dollars and they are mixed use developments, um, typically on a greenfield site um, that includes thousands of residential units, plus every other, every other asset class is covered as well. So that that is how we we define a giga project, and there's currently 15 of those that we're tracking. All right, and wow. and and I, I what's the, how does that differ from a mega project? By the way, this is a side conversation, Lucian. If I have had, or we don't have an answer. <laughs> is it isn't it under 10b? Isn't that I the thought number? I thought giga was 10b, 10 billion, but. Yeah, oh. well, I mean, we we don't have a definition for for mega right. projects. I I haven't used that term. I don't think we we use that. It's giga giga or nothing, I guess. <laughs> so you would you would include CAFT in that KFD in in the giga projects because it's it's mixed use. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I was curious because I don't didn't know if something had gotten relegated. 
Because in, in an earlier iteration of GigaProducts checks, you had 15. In this report, you guys have nine. Um, and it may just be, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a editing decision. But anyway, I wasn't sure if something had actually changed, but it sounds like you're still tracking 15 giga projects uh, and, and proceeding. Uh, just fascinating stuff. Um, let's talk a little bit about one of the there's new components in the report this year that you guys, again, because you're trying to get a comprehensive view uh, and you, 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 tried to assess uh, Saudi attitudes uh, towards healthcare, education, branded residences, retail, hospitality offerings. Can you, uh, uh, you know, wh whatever depth you'd like to go to, can you talk a little bit about those things? And, and also, I I'd be interested in why, you know, Knight Frank decided these should be in the survey. Okay, uh, let's start with with branded residences to wrap up uh, the discussion on, uh, on the residential sector. Um, branded residences is a really interesting one. Um, we actually tried to gauge the appetite to buy branded residences last year. Um, and amongst those who are classed as homeowners, the interest was less than 10%. And amongst first-time buyers, it was less than 5%. This was quite surprising to us um, because in nearby Dubai, which is currently the world's largest branded residential market by number of units available, we know that Saudi nationals are amongst the top buyers of branded residential product in Dubai. Um, and so it was quite surprising that they didn't feel the same way about branded residences inside the kingdom. Um, and we feel that that is linked to a very limited branded residential offering and perhaps not necessarily uh, a true branded residential offering has been made available. We've seen instances of residential property that has been furnished with luxury branded furniture that has been classed as branded residences. And of course, that isn't what a branded residence is. This time around, we provided quite a detailed definition of, of a branded residence, explaining that it comes with luxury services and amenities, usually courtesy of an adjoining luxury hotel brand. And when we did that, we actually found that a pretty extraordinary 69% of Saudi respondents say that they want to buy a branded residence this year. Mm. Um, at this point, I probably ought to say that our survey is better reflective of aspirations than reality. Um, but Lucian, you'll probably appreciate that sentiment is often a far better indicator of capital allocation than deals themselves. Um, and so with, with that in mind, um, you know, it, it tells us that that depth of demand for branded residences is really high. Um, and that is why we wanted to look at it. Um, however, when we look at budgets, again, you know, 69% are willing to commit just 750,000 rials for a branded residential property. Um, and it is going to be very difficult to afford a branded residence at that, you know, price point. Um, so, so that is why we, we wanted to look at that um, sector uh, in particular, because we feel um, even, even if we move slightly further up the, the sort of budget spectrum, um, one of the things we wanted to assess was the depth of second home ownership in the kingdom. Now, last year, that number came in at about 44% of existing homeowners wanted to buy another home. And this year, we find that that number is virtually unchanged at 40%. So despite the steep increases in house prices, this segment of the market is still very keen on buying a second home. However, to date, 
there are very limited offerings available for second homeowners inside the kingdom. Um, and so, uh, you know, a third area of opportunity we feel lies within the branded residential space to create and develop a vibrant, thriving branded residential market. We need to be partnering with the right brands offering true branded residential product. Um, and that will help to cater to some of this pent up demand from second home buyers. And look, we're already starting to see that, you know, you've got the Shangri-La and the Four Seasons coming into Jeddah. Uh, so it is starting to change slowly, but the branded residential market is still very much in its infancy in the kingdom. So um, that's very interesting. And it, it is fascinating to hear the, as you dive down into actual, you know, wording of a question and how it's, how it's uh, understood. But let's follow along on where you just took us, Faisal, because uh, at the end of the report, really interesting uh, section called The Opportunities. And you've given us extraordinary insight on the residential and now just, uh, and one was, you know, there's five that the report outlines, details. And the second is branded residential market. Let's just go ahead to the third, if that's okay. Um, and that's healthcare and education. Sure. Um, look, we, we talked a little bit about the increased focus on the livability and habitability of Saudi cities. We've talked about how the government has targets to you know, virtually double the population of Riyadh um, and attract international white collar workers to come and live uh, in the kingdom with their families. Um, so in order to do that, we are going to have to increase provisions around healthcare and education. And right now, there are 19,000 hospital beds that are under construction, being built at a cost of about $14 billion. There's 80 new schools and universities under construction being built at a cost of $8 billion. Um, one of the things we did in our survey was try and understand attitudes towards the local healthcare offering. And what we found is that 40% of Saudis actually travel abroad for elective or essential medical treatments. Um, and the primary reasons cited revolve around quality, the quality of the treatments available abroad, the quality of the medical professionals available abroad, or perceptions thereof. Um, and in order to try and stem that flow of Saudis going abroad and ensure the success of these hospitals and clinics and medical facilities that are being developed, we are going to have to partner with the right international brands to relieve that perception or negative perception around the quality of healthcare in the kingdom. And the same is sort of true when it comes to schools. Over half of Saudi parents want to send their kids to a private school. And when you look at the um, curricular menu, if you like, um, the, the preference is very much for either a dual language curriculum or the American or British systems that close, uh, closely follow. Um, and the preference for international curricula actually rises with income. And again, with the volume of um, schools being planned, we need to make sure we bring in the correct brands to allow the success of these schools. And I guess the final point on that is the significant role that schools can play in anchoring residential communities. We've got excellent examples in Abu Dhabi and Dubai where schools actually create demand for housing in the surrounding area and drive up house prices if that school is of a high quality and has a high reputation in the community. 
And furthermore, we know, for example, a 2000 desk school attracts about 1200 unique visits twice a day. And these are parents that are picking up and dropping their kids off. So <laughs> if you have a retail facility nearby, you've automatically created feeder traffic for that. So I think the, the importance of having a high quality school at the center of a residential community should not be underestimated. Yeah. And in your, in the report puzzle, the, it's almost like a like uniform response right at about 70% of people said that daycare schools, universities, technical institutions, adult education, 70% of people say that's very important to them or important. I think you used the word important to them. That's, that's consistent. Um, that's, that's wild. Uh, it is it is consistent and it's it's reflective of the fact that you know again coming back to this point on on the demographics we've got such a large young population many of whom have been educated overseas um, and they understand and appreciate the importance of um, having an international degree and then coming home um, and trying to make a difference and contribute to the economic transformation taking place and they want the same for their kids yeah um we could go off on so many tangents there and, it, and it's fascinating to me and anything that Saudi Arabia tries to do, it's never a straight shot. There's, there's, uh, you know, a multiplicity of elements that are trying, they're trying to handle, come in together at the same time. Cause you know, just, just this has so many factors, but let's go to the number four on the opportunities and that's the hospitality sector. This sector, I think, alongside residential, is probably one that is undergoing the most significant transformation right now. Um, as we said a few minutes ago, we, you know, we're, we're tracking about 310,000 new hotel rooms uh, that are being planned around the kingdom. And we guesstimate that that will cost in excess of $110 billion to deliver. This, of course, is, comes in parallel to the vision of the government to attract 100 million visitors to the kingdom by the end of this decade. Um, now, one of the things we wanted to do was also investigate developments in secondary and tertiary cities around Saudi, because without adequate investment in these cities, uh, we are unlikely to continue seeing the emergence of what is already a very vibrant domestic tourism market. Um, so what we found is very positively that 65% of Saudis already travel within the kingdom one to three times a month. And they mm. do that typically for work, for religious reasons, or to take advantage of regional cultural and entertainment festivals um, that, that take place. But what was really interesting for us is when we asked Saudis where they typically stay when they travel within the kingdom, it was only about 42% said that they stay in hotels. Another 20% say they stay with friends and family, 20% prefer service departments. Um, so we wanted to really understand why 60 odd percent of Saudis choose not to stay in a hotel when they're traveling domestically. What are those reasons that force them or drive them to consider alternative options? Um, and we've actually got the results segmented uh, by age or generation, if you like, uh, within the report. Uh, what I found quite fascinating is the millennials and, and Gen Z or Gen Z group, um, and these are you know people below the age of 35 and 25 respectively, uh, for them, cost considerations are actually a lot lower than people who are over the age of 45. Pretty <laughs> ironic, given that that is the group that is struggling to save deposits to get on the housing ladder. Um, but, you know, overall, what was interesting to see 
is that barriers or you know dampeners towards staying in a in a hotel uh, domestically are around location and and quality um and so you know this is going to be really important for hotel developers or hotel investors going forward because we've got the, the domestic population commenting on the quality and location of the facilities available uh, so this comes back to providing you know, world-class brands as, as a start. Uh, I mean, a city like Riyadh, we've only got 30,000 odd uh, hotel rooms. Uh, for contrast, Dubai, uh, we've got 140,000 hotel rooms, albeit that's amongst the highest hotel room uh, concentrations in the world. Um, and so we simply haven't got enough hotels to uh, rooms to accommodate the volume of people we're expecting to come and visit. Um, and for those that are cost conscious, only 17% of what is planned falls in the three-star and below category. And we do have a group of Saudis that is cost-conscious, so we are not addressing that group at the moment at all. Um, and when it comes to the millennials, when it comes to the Gen Zs or Gen Zs, you know, we need to be thinking about luxury glamping sites or youth hostels, albeit with local cultural sensitivities in mind. And we're, we're not seeing that development yet, which is why we see that as, a, as another big opportunity area. Fascinating. So, Lucian, you're, you're a millennial cohort group. You just you just want to go to a nice place no matter the cost. Is that so much to ask? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, let's go... Uh, Let's go to that fifth opportunity, Faisal, the uh, experiential retail. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the retail sector, like everywhere else in the world, was one of the most significantly impacted by the pandemic. Um, and what we've seen um, is, is a much more um, focus by retail developers, mall owners, uh, mall developers on creating uh, what are called lifestyle retail developments. Um, and this is where there's a much greater emphasis on food and beverage outlets, as well as entertainment. Uh, and in the case of Saudi Arabia, specifically cinemas, um, which, which tend to attract large crowds. Um, now, one of the things we, we did in our survey was actually uh, try and understand what type of retail format people prefer to do their shopping in. Um, and surprise, surprise, shopping malls are still really popular. But once you start segmenting by age, uh, we actually find that the Gen Zs uh, or the Gen Zs, so these are people below the age of 25, uh, least prefer shopping malls amongst all the other age groups. Um, and when it comes to online shopping, they prefer online shopping more than any other age group. And of course, throughout the pandemic, uh, online shopping has boomed globally. And, and we see that in the industrial warehousing space with you know, a surge in demand for distribution warehouses, last mile logistics facilities. Um, and so for mall owners, mall developers going forward, does that spell the end of bricks and mortar retail as we know it? Probably not. Uh, but what it does mean is we need to pay much closer attention to the in, uh, incorporation of entertainment um, into our uh, retail developments. I mean, you need to think about things like stores that offer heavy personal customization of goods, um, stores that offer a showroom concept, uh, stores that incorporate F&B, uh, for example. And those are probably glimpses of what the future of retail will look like. Mr. Faisal Durrani, partner and head of Middle East research at the global real estate firm Knight Frank. 
Faisal, we could do this over four hours and I'm going to, oh I'm going to suggest that we put a bow on it now. And Richard, uh, we have to, we have to expand this next year because there's just so much stuff and it's all in this report. Please go download it, um, from night Frank's website at nightfrank.com. Just, I mean, it's 75 pages of data and, and you can see from Faisal, it's just every, it touches everything. So Faisal, thank you so much for your time today. This is awesome. Thank you, Lucian. Thank you, Richard. That was our conversation with Faisal Durrani. We appreciate his time very much and his insights. You can download the report that he discussed in detail with us at nightfrank.com. You got to put in your email, but then you can download the whole report. And it's 75 pages, Richard, beautifully <laughs> produced. Looks like a document we might produce with very visual graphic heavy. Yeah, with with a year. It, it looks good. Yeah, with a year. Yeah, exactly. With enough time. But it's gorgeous. It really is. And, and very informative down to some very granular detail, which it's, is just so good for us. There's so much data in that thing. And as we said earlier, we're, we're hitching the, this episode star to Faisal's segment. <laughs> Thank you, Faisal, for carrying, Thank me, you for carrying a whole deal today. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, let's get to Yella. Um, Yella. Saudi in a minute. Yella. <laughs> uh, world number one, world military spending rises to record as insecurity swells. Um, defense expenditure increased by 3.7% in real terms to reach a record high of $2.24 trillion in 2022, uh, reported the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. About half of the annual increase was due to Ukraine's ballooning military budget, according to data, for the Eastern European country that excludes foreign aid. Arms budgets are expanding across Europe in response to Russia's aggression at the same time as tensions in East Asia are prompting larger outlays in that part of the world. And another sign of how the world is sliding back into a situation last seen during the Cold War, military expenditure in Central and Western European countries exceeded the 1989 level for the first time. Yeah, I mean, that's good news for arms exporters, for sure. Yeah. Um, Saudi Arabia was the world's fifth largest military spender in 2022, overtaking the UK, Germany, and France. The kingdom's military expenditure reached $75 billion last year, which is a 16% increase uh, when it was eighth globally, and spent 7.4% of its GDP on defense more than any other nation except for Ukraine. That's uh, a lot. You know, this <clears throat> this invasion of Ukraine right after the pandemic, coming out of the pandemic, it's just a tragedy. Yes. Just a tragedy. I mean, it's going to, uh, you know, it's going it, to, it, you know, through the world into convulsions, it, it prolonged the, the, you know, the downturn. It's caused mayhem in economies globally. Russia is going to be put back, you know, a, a number of years, if not decades, in terms of its its economic growth, and may never recover. Ukraine, of course, is you know, the worst of all. People are suffering there, tremendous displacement, a lot of loss, and we've got a lot to go. I mean, it may end up, you know, being sort of a in a in a you know a no movement, just ongoing crisis. It's just a disaster, and so and this is one of the offshoots of it. I didn't know. You you talked about it. You know, this is one of those things. We're in the weeds every day with this. I hadn't really paid attention that because they had intended Saudi Arabia. We're talking about Saudi Arabia. They had intended, <clears throat> uh, budgeted for a 10% decrease 
in defense spending in 2022. And they ended up with a 16% increase, and which is interesting, the first increase since 2018. And, and, and it looks like they're projecting a little increase, some increase in the 2023 expenditures. And, and I don't have details on this. I went, look, people, you know, there was a the World World Defense show in March, which gave it a, a bump. Saudi Arabia bought a number of things and contracted a number of things. But this was sneaky, and it not intentionally sneaky, as in sneaky as I wasn't paying attention to it, their defense budget has grown, uh, grew in 2022. Um, I was also interested, that you, did you see who was the fourth? So you had, you had US, China, and uh, Russia, right, as the top three. US, China, and Russia. And it counted for 56% of the world total. Number four, interestingly enough, was India. Huh. Which I sort of hadn't, you know, didn't realize they were in that, that, uh, you know, uh, that altitude in terms of spending. But yes, uh, you, you, we both sort of, we both sort of jumped at. My goodness, we hadn't paid attention that Saudi Arabia was really laying out on defense spending in 2022. Well, you just you posed a very interesting question to to look into. We can't get into it now, and and I know you looked into it before discussing this a little bit, but but the why there would be worthy of investigation um, maybe through a, a special guest. Cause I mean, that's a, that's a huge discrepancy um, in the plan spending and the actual spending more than just the world defense show or a couple contracts might account for, right. but it also isn't as simple as well, oil prices were up. And so there was a lot more money. And so they spent more money that, which was sort of seemed to be mentioned in a couple of news stories. And that's not really how it works. So I'm wondering what the deal is, but it, it- it, yeah, I, I, th- I think that's definitely worthwhile. Maybe we can. Uh, you, probably would know this. We have we have a couple friends who would know this, but, um, and you know, at the IDEX, uh, the you know the Emir- Emirates, uh, you know, the sort of the grandfather of the, the defense shows. Uh, UA spent a lot of money, but not on, on uh, equipment really, on on new shiny hardware. They spent it on you know, support, maintenance platforms, you know support that sort of thing so it was different kind of spending yeah and I, I wonder if we get into this if saudi is doing similar things and which is one reason maybe we're not all aware of it i mean you, you announce a big f-35 sale but you know you don't necessarily announce uh you know lower level more operational acquisitions yeah fascinating qatar with a 27.2 percent uh percentage increase year on year that's a lot Finland with 35.6% recent NATO um, uh, joiner, right? So, right. And Sweden right there, 12%. Yeah. And that's the other thing, Russia 9.2. You know, that, that's the other thing. You know, Russia's misstep in, in Ukraine and, and, and whatever they were thinking has just, you know, caused them more problems in other parts of their borders, you know, and, and it's just a, you know, it's a miscalculation of it's going to cost grief and, and, hardship for most of the globe. Yeah. U.S. still number one, though, baby. Bigger military budget is still bigger than all of those other countries that make up the top 10 list combined, which is just one of the weird little little factoids in that. And this is the, the, you know, who did they did the CIPRI who did the report was um, significant increase, a significant percentage of that increased U.S. budget was the twenty billion they earmarked for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, 
I guess U.S. financial aid in 2022 was 99 billion. Um, so anyway, it, again, it's uh, it's too bad all of this, and uh, and you know we all hope for we all hope for a more peaceful world in 2023 going forward. Well, this report surely lays out how much money could be saved if there was a more peaceful world in 2023. We are not keeping our hopes up, unfortunately, with Sudan and Ukraine and possibly China, Taiwan and other flashpoints waiting, oh boy. which is really sad. Um, We're a ray yeah. of sunshine. We should yeah, go on we, yeah. Let's go back to Faisal. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Yella, number two, Richard. <laughs> Saudi Arabia advances 17 ranks in World Bank's Logistics Performance Index. Saudi Arabia, which came in at 38, was ranked 55th in the 2018 report and has seen its stock as a global logistics hub rise as it formulates plans for as many as 60 logistics hubs around the kingdom and contemplates wholesale upgrades of existing ports as well as a number of greenfield facilities. Identical rankings to Saudi Arabia were achieved by India, Lithuania, Portugal, and Turkey. Also, all ranked 38th equal with identical overall LPI scores of 3.4. The rankings were topped by Singapore with a score of 4.2, and Finland coming in second, also on 4.2, and Denmark third with 4.1. This was interesting. As is our habit, I went and looked at this World Bank Logistics Performance Index. And it is really interesting. And they get in, you know, World Bank is getting into some deep data. And they've been doing this since 2007. I thought it was two things were interesting to me. Well, a boatload of things were interesting. But so they've been doing this since 2007. Um, this break, uh, they've been doing it roughly every two years. And then they take this five-year break between 2018 and 2023. Um, obviously, because I think because of the pandemic. Um, but for whatever reason... Saudi's metrics on this measurement had been trending down since 2014. So actually since 2012. So in 2012, they, they, their overall mark was uh, 37. And then 2014, 49, 2016, 52, 2018, uh, 55. And then we have this nice drop overall 38 in 2023. And it's hard to, it, it's interesting just know what the factor of that vision 2030 is some of the investment if it's kicking in you know because logistics is a big focus of vision 2030 and uh maybe some of these some of these things are kicking in and you're seeing results which has to be very encouraging uh but it is nice to see the trends going back up after a bit of a slide over over a um you know basically a, a almost a 10-year period yeah, very useful context there, Richard. This is largely due, I think, to, and they, they mentioned this, those 60 logistics hubs around the kingdoms as reports and and then new sort of special zones and, and areas that sort of all are part of the national transportation and logistics strategy, which was recently launched and kind of encompasses structural reforms, qualitative strategic initiatives, things like that, that make it so that there's a lot of incentive incentives around getting these this the basically well i mean in the simplest terms making saudi arabia realize its goals of becoming a, a hub between east and west and making saudi arabia a place that you can have your your goods or um whatever it is actually sort of you know 
using the kingdom as its geographic location to be a pivot point. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is, it's a concerted effort, I guess is the point I'm making, but I mean, it's like, a, they're, <laughs> they're trying to do this. This is something they they're interested in sort of seeing their performance increase in. Yeah. And they'll be pleased with this. They like metrics. So this is a good one. I go to world banks metrics. They're a good story, you know, after, yeah, exactly. <laughs> after a sad one. So, um, uh, yellow number three, Saudis constitute 82.2% of workforce and financial insurance act and insurance activities. Reflecting the success of localization efforts, Saudis con constituted 82.2% of the number of workers in the financial and insurance sectors in 2022. Saudi citizens who are working in financial insurance and insurance activities reached 75,000, while foreigners totaled 16,290, or 17.8%. Um, male workers made up 93% of the workforce in financial insurance and insurance activities, reaching 70, almost 72,000 workers in 2022, while the number of females working in these activities hit uh, just over 19,500, according to Al-Iqtisadiyah. Yeah, Richard, this is an important story. We're going to talk a little bit more about the increase in female employment in Saudi Arabia and a, a later Yella. But this is interesting because this also ties very closely with the Ministry of Human Resource and Social Development's implementation of different stages of localization. Um, like uh, in April, they just announced a localization of 30% of the consultancy profession. October last year, Human Resources and Development Minister said these decisions have contributed to raising the number of Saudi workers in the private sector to over 2.12 million. So they're, they're just like the last yellow, they're sort of setting up these benchmarks and trying to hit them by, and this in this case, it's localization. This is really, really good uh, for Saudi, which, I mean, Richard, since graduating from undergrad and starting to work with you in 2008, localizing their workforce has been a consistent theme, but getting, <laughs> getting Saudis to do jobs in Saudi Arabia has been an ongoing challenge. And so this is good. This is very good. Yeah. And it's, it's I mean, Nita Katz Nita Kat, came yeah. about in 2011. So we're, we're, you know, we're almost close, you know, we're closing in on almost 15 years. Um, and it's been, uh, you know, it's been arduous, difficult, you know, two steps up, one step back, a lot of work with the private sector. They haven't gotten it right, but they've really been persistent and uh, you're seeing results of it. And, and as I've, I say frequently in, in, in our, on the 966, you know, Saudi Arabia is having a moment where the economy is growing. Uh, they're making real progress on, on women's partage, participation, real progress in uh, Saudi uh, citizen participation, you know, real progress and more, more employment in the private sector and any number of things. And I, you, you could, I mean, just trying to get a list of, of, of regulations that have been passed that require localization in particular segments is really hard to do because there's been so many. I mean, I just did a quick run and, and, you know, it's just, you know, 50% of procurement professions, 15% of sales professions, 15, 50% of engineering technical professions, um, you know, all the way down to 60% of senior management professions in postal and parcel transportations. I mean, that's how detailed it is. And you meant re reference the consultancy one, I think, which has gotten a lot of news because that's going to be really interesting because, you know, the consultant business has been such a big deal in, in Saudi Arabia. And a lot of people have made a lot of money. Um, you know, and, and requiring, you know, by 
March 2024 that, you know, you know, 40% of consultancy professionals be Saudi. That'll be interesting to see if it changes that a little bit, but they're refashioning every sector in the economy. So why not consultancy? Yella number four, the Saudi public investment fund has jumped one ranking to fifth globally with 620 billion assets under management. The ranking of the PIF has improved from sixth to fifth among the largest sovereign wealth funds in the world for the first time with assets valued at SR, Saudi Real's 2.3 trillion or $620 billion. The fund's share of the world's sovereign wealth has increased to 6.2% up from 5.9%, according to Arab News. Um, I, you know, because these things, these rankings, they're different, you know, different people have different things. Um, I wasn't sure who they leapfrogged. <laughs> And also, you know, I, te- I tend not to pay too much attention because it's an ongoing thing, you know, and and there'll be, you know, there'll be reversals here and there or, you know, in this quarter or this and that. So, you know, the longer term trend is definitely optimistic with, with regard to the PIF. And it's certainly getting up into the upper ranks of, of, of SWF, sovereign wealth funds. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a tripling since. 2019. We did talk about this in a recent episode, Richard, um, sort of going through some of the stuff that they've done. Also, recently, Sinobel took control, uh, Sinobel Investments, which is a majority owned PIF company that does a lot of PE and VC investments, sort of a fund of funds, um, took control of some Aramco shares on behalf of the PIF. Statistically small total percentage of the of Aramco, but it was, you know, a few billion dollars. I think I don't have the numbers in front of me, but so, so you have stuff like that happening, you know, and so that, that does change the amount of AUM from, you know, whatever, but so just interesting. Yeah. But then, you know, they're, they're in the league now with, uh, well, you know, Japan and Norway up over a trillion as well as China. They're up, mm-hmm. you know, towards one point, those three up closer to 1.5 trillion than 1 trillion. But there, you know, they're in the, and, and China has, that's the other things that's a little confusing. There'll be multiple funds. So China has has numerous ones that are actually larger than Saudi Arabia's, or at least a couple. Uh, but then you have Adia and and then you have KI Kuwait. So anyway, they're you know they you know the, the important thing for the for the PIF is just to keep doing its work, not really worry about its rankings. Although we know how how you know they like to celebrate you know metrics like this. <laughs> yeah, I agree, and they they are sort of still very much heads down on growing the size of the fund and that they they want that but they also want to be they want to be the size of norway's and china's so Uh, yeah this is good um uh another good bit bit of good news um the unemployment rate in saudi arabia dropped to eight percent at the end of 2022 down from 11 percent in 2021 with women driving that positive change, according to the recently released report from Jadwa Investment, citing the General Authority for Statistics, latest labor market released, female unemployment was down to 15.4% in 2022 versus 22.5% in the previous year. Yeah, Richard, maybe the the good story of the year so far for Saudi Arabia, because this is the manifestation, or this is the result, I should say, of a uh, just a long writing of the ship when it comes to unleashing the value of women in the workforce in Saudi Arabia, which goes back to Vision 2030. Embracing that as a 
untapped resource and letting these women enter into the workforce in droves. And what you have is an unemployment ranking, you know, an unemployment rate that's falling down from 11% in 2021, as you said, to 8%. But you also have the jobs that these women are entering into, those jobs being more competitive and and so better candidates and better employees entering those jobs and doing them. It's just, this is just so good. Um, good on Saudi women who are just so impressive. Yeah, we're in, again, the, the Saudi moment, they're in a virtuous cycle right now where they have high revenues. They've made good regulatory decisions. They're really trying to, to um, uh, jumpstart the you know the private sector they're moving they're investing heavily in the in the domestic economy and and so they're they're sort of, you know going from good to good right now and it's great i think it's worthwhile cuz we love judwin yes i mean we think judwin investment and their quarterly their reports their monthly reports really and they do quarterly ones too are are of tremendous value and this one was on on, on unemployment or employment um and there are a couple other things in this you know, that they highlighted. And I think it's worth mentioning. So the uh, General Authority for Statistics, GA stat. Um, so the overall employment dropped to 8% at the end of 2022, down 2022, down 11% from 2021. Again, that 11% was very worrisome. They got up to 12, I believe. Um, and, you know, there was concerns about, you know, systemically, how are we going to move off of this? They moved off, you know, pretty quickly. Uh, as we talked about, the decline was largely because of female the drop in female unemployment. That fifteen, that you know, that twenty-two percent last year to fifteen percent this year is just impressive. Um, total labor force participation edged up to fifty-two point five percent. Again, both genders going going up, and this is a big deal. A, a good rise in the number of Saudi worker, workers in the private sector, which rose by fifteen percent. In one year, 15% from 1.9 million in 2021 to 2.2 million in 2022. Um, yeah, and, that's substantial. Yeah. And this is interesting too. And it speaks to actually Mohammed bin Salman's vision for the country. And a, a lot of the uh, advantageous uh, benefits of these uh, large scale projects and other steps that Saudi Arabia's taken, the number of expatriates in the labor market rebounded in 2022 to pre-COVID-19 levels, uh, with the majority of new joiners seen in two sectors, construction and agriculture. Um, anyway, so that's a good report. Judwa always does good reports. We love them. Uh, more power to you, Judwa. They do good reports, and this report was good in the subject matter, and that it shows the labor force in Saudi Arabia really going in the right direction. It's awesome. Yeah. Awesome to see. Richard Yella, number six. Saudi Arabia is building more hotels in the UAE for the first time, according to a report in Hotelier Middle East. The UAE is no longer the regional leader when it comes to building hotels. According to STR, Saudi Arabia has almost double the number of hotel rooms being built in the UAE. Saudi sits behind only China and the U.S. globally in terms of the number of hotel rooms currently being built. So, wow. Go see that Saudi report that Knight Frank did. And the link will be in this episode. Uh, Lucian will make it prominent. Yes, it's it's just awesome. They have a whole section on the hospitality sector, and they're tracking. Knight Frank is tracking over more than three hundred ten thousand hotel rooms in process. You know, at various stages. Um, and this is you know again they compare. This is SDR is a different different uh, outfit, 
but uh, Diet Frank, that Saudi report compares that 310,000 to the 210,000, uh, I mean, 200,000 in the uh, UAE, including Dubai. So same, same conclusion, you know, that Saudi Arabia is outpacing the UAE in terms of new hotel rooms and keys under, and, 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 and it both in, uh, uh, you know, being built or, or coming soon. And um, I, I would add again, let's, let's, promote that Saudi report. Uh, obviously, part and parcel with hotel rooms is reason for people to come and stay in them. Yeah. And Saudi Arabia is trying to make a real effort. They've got some way to go to be Dubai. I mean, if they ever be Dubai, but they've made real progress. And one of that Saudi reports is, it points out that the Saudi General Entertainment Authority has granted, um, this is just during 2022, granted operating licenses for 24 theme parks, issued over 4,000 permits for events and a further 3,300 licenses for live performances during 2022. Basically just, you know, trying to make Saudi Arabia an interesting and enjoyable place to visit. Yeah. Great point. Richard, we actually strung together a pretty good episode here, you know, anchored, <laughs> anchored by, by Faisal. Faisal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we managed not to ruin Faisal Durrani's amazing um, appearance with us on this episode, but yeah, Richard, this is really good. Episode 84 now in the books. Um, we will be back next week with another special guest in a full episode, and we will hope to bring a little bit more noise than we brought this time, but uh, I think it's turned out okay. Awesome. Always, 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 always a, a pleasure. One of, the, one of the best times of my week is to hang out with you. <laughs> Likewise. I kind of get sad when this is over, to it's be true. honest, because I'm just like, oh, now we, you know, that's it. The anticipation's <laughs> gone. It was a delightful time. Now what do I have to look now, for? Now, yeah, we just have to wait for the next one, just like our <laughs> listeners do. Richard, thank you very much. Thank you, man. <laughs>